Hey everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by returning guest to the podcast, Preston Sprinkle, to talk with him about his brand new book, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? Uh, 21 Conversations from a Historically Christian View. And you know, we we get in, get into that as well, but probably the first half of our conversation is really talking about how do you have conversations that are just difficult to where lots of people, um, not necessarily lots of people, but people just disagree about different things. How do you engage in those types of conversations where you're talking with somebody who just disagrees with you? And so that is just, I, I think. I just absolutely believe that we need to get better at having those types of conversations. And that's why I'm just very excited to, um, to talk about that with Preston as well. And, you know, what we want to do here on the podcast, you know, having conversations like this is why the podcast started in the first place. And we just want to continue to engage in uh, those just types of conversations to where it's just difficult to find people to, to talk with, or maybe you find a little bit difficult timer. Or maybe it's even just a topic that you're not sure that you could talk with anybody about. Well, we want to cover that here on the podcast. And if you're on that journey of lifelong learning, you know, obviously you are listening to this podcast. But another thing you could do is subscribe to my Substack, to where I give lots of lots of recommendations of the different things that I am learning from and some of the things that I'm learning about, different topics. And it could be in the form of just all sorts of different media from podcasts to music to articles to videos to, I mean, to quotes that are just making me think that I want to share all, all of those different things are being shared on the Substack. And again, you can go to Substack to, uh, to find out those things or you can, you know, it's still going to take you to Substack, but just go straight to the show notes and everything and they'll be right there as well. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Preston, and then we're going to jump into my conversation with him. Preston Sprinkle is the president of Theology in the Raw, which started as a podcast and has grown into much more, including an annual Exiles in Babylon conference hosted in Boise, Idaho. He is also the founder and president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and he is a New York Times bestselling author who has written books such as Embodied, People to Be Loved, Scandalous Grace, Nonviolence, Living in a Gray World, and many others as well. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Preston, it is good to have you back on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks for having me back on, Caleb. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, I I absolutely love how you start this latest book of yours, Does uh, Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? And you start out with a section of how to actually have a fruitful conversation. Mm, yeah. And I, I would just love to get started with just that portion of it. And I, I, I think I could probably understand why, but I'd just love to <laughs> just have you unpack of what made you start with that. I'm so glad you appreciate that chapter because um, I would say everything else in the book I've been talking about uh, for a long time, usually, you know, speaking, answering questions, Q&A. And really this book is me just putting it down into what kind of a one-stop shop. Okay. Here's all my thoughts on, you know, all the pushbacks to the traditional view of marriage. You know, I've been thinking through this for a while and I've ironed out my thoughts by talking to people. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very used to, the rest of the book, but the first chapter is really stuff that I've picked up on intuitively over the years, stuff I've been reading about, but I haven't really, I think this is probably the first time I've really been able to organize my thoughts and lay out in written form. Okay. Here are some big picture fundamental ideas on how to have a, a fruitful conversation across, I would say any contentious issue. I mean, if I wrote a book on politics, I could open the book with the exact same word for word chapter, you know? So yeah, for me, um, uh, I just see again with any contentious issue, but you know, with the one we're talking about sexuality, specifically sexuality, 
I just see us going about this conversation really poorly. Um, you know, our, our emotions get heated. We try to win arguments. We get frustrated when people don't see things the way we do. You know, sometimes two people are looking at the same passage of scripture and reading it differently. And both sides just get incredibly frustrated. And, you know, you end up just kind of not having a fruitful conversation, you know? So this chapter is designed to do that before we even get into this really volatile, really sensitive, really emotional conversation. Let's, um, let's, let's try to explore what's the, what's a better way to go about this, this conversation. So, and, and it applies to, uh, talking about politics over your next Thanksgiving meal as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, that's one of the things that I really appreciate because I know like, that's what we're trying. That's what I'm trying to do here on this podcast is create a space for those fruitful conversations. I know that's kind of the same thing that you're mm-hmm. trying to do yeah. on theology in the raw yeah. also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would just love uh, to maybe just start by unpacking, like what's one of the things or what's one of the most impactful things that you've learned, you know, mm-hmm. in your research over the past several years, of of having those types of fruitful conversations yeah. it's hard to boil it down to one i i would say well we we could go to several yeah i'm, I'm gonna ask you more questions don't worry well let me just begin with one of the main ones and this kind of yeah. leads into several other key points uh i guess the one of the biggest ones for me is being a genuinely curious listener so when you're in any kind of dialogue and you sense there's a disagreement at stake here. Um, it's so hard. It, you, it, it's so natural for us to hunker down, get defensive, get into debate mode or get into, even if some of us aren't naturally like debatey kind of people, we just kind of, sometimes we might just shut down and kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't want to engage this conversation. And I just want to encourage people to cultivate just a rhythm of curiosity. Um, I don't care if, if you feel like the other person's viewpoint is just so outlandish. Like, just be cur- be curious. If anything, try to understand what exactly is it that they are uh, trying. What what is it that they believe? Why do they believe that? Not why do they believe that, but why do they believe that? You know, like a like cultivating a genuine, curious listening posture. Not not listening simply to find a hole in their argument and refute it. We've all been on the other side of that. You know, when somebody's listening at you with that kind of stink eye, they're kind of like you know, they're not buying it. They're just kind of like analyzing everything you're saying, waiting for that one thing you say wrong. And that's just a horrible place to be. They're not, they don't care about you or your position. And when somebody else, when you know, they don't care about you or your position, your, with your viewpoint, the walls go up and there's, there's no hope of a fruitful conversation. So I don't care what the other person's, well, that's just, you know, in this case, let's assume you believe in traditional marriage. Let's assume the person you're talking to um, believes that same-sex marriage is totally blessed by God. Maybe they feel like it's offensive to not believe otherwise. Can you can you cultivate a curious posture to where you're like you're truly wondering well, how did they arrive at that position, and have a sense of eagerness? Like I actually want to know why this person believes this, and and truly be able to understand it to the point to where you can actually articulate their viewpoint back to them where they would say, yeah, that's exactly, you're representing my view exactly um, in the form that I that I hold it. So I would say that's kind of the number one thing. And, and that's kind of related to other things. You know, don't straw man the other argument and, and you know, um, express humility in your own viewpoint and, and so on and so forth, which I'm sure we can get to. Yeah. You know, I, I'd love to just hear, is there like a recent example where you've had to like engage in your curiosity more? Because we all, we all have our things to where it's like, man, it's like, because it's either the person or the topic or whatever. That's difficult for us to yeah. engage in that curiosity. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, and again, will, you don't have to say like the specific name or well, anything like that. I, I feel like it's hard to pin, pin down one because on my podcast, that's, it's what I do all the time. Yeah. Sometimes it's, I guess, okay, so it's easier when I am listening to somebody who I already, there's a lot of agreement. So for instance, I just recorded a podcast episode with um, Justin Brierly, who used to host the, uh, uh, it's called the Unbelievable Podcast. Yeah, yep. Great, this guy, I just love him so much. He's such a, almost like a hero, he would say we're, he would, yeah, he, he would. I just, he, he's just a model at like hosting oh. hard conversations. Yeah. So anyway, so, so a lot of residents. So that's easy to have, to be curious about, but I've had other people on that, um, you know, 
maybe it's a conversation about race relations. Maybe it's about um, purity culture or, um, or sexuality or politics or something where the person's saying something. I'm like, I don't know if I agree with that, but like, I, I want to make sure I understand what they're saying before I refute it. So I, yeah, it's hard for me to pin down what one, one example yeah. where, where I've had to do that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, that that's fine. What, what helps you, like, do you just repeat back what you're hearing and go like, is, is this what you're saying or t- walk me through, like what helps yeah. you gain like that, like that deeper level of understanding. And you're causing me to self-reflect on something I, I often don't self-reflect on, but <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, think... I love talking about this stuff okay, because oh, good. I, that's what I want to do. Good. I, I do too. Um, I, I, what you said is great. Yeah. I, I've, I've done that. Um, yeah, I guess I do often do that. I don't think about it doing it, but I do it a lot. Like, like, Hey, here's, here's what I hear you saying. Is this a, is this an accurate representation of what you're, what you're actually saying? I think that's a great thing to do. Cause if they're like, no, that's not at all what I'm saying. Then any further conversation would just get off the rails, right? Like if you're assuming something about what they're saying, that isn't true. Then when you move into like, you know, dialogue or debate, or you kind of like, well, yeah, but you know, maybe you push back or it's just going to get off the rails if you don't understand it. So yeah, I think, a catchphrase I use in the, in the first chapter is understand before you refute, make sure you have an accurate representation of what the person actually believes before you begin to kind of refute it. And yeah, I think repeating back to them, here's what I hear you saying is a great, not only is it a great exercise so that you make sure you understand what they're saying, but it also, when people do that to me, it feels good. Like it feels like, Oh, this person's actually trying to understand what I'm saying. Cause I get one of the things that drives me crazy, Caleb, is when I'm misrepresented. I can handle mm-hmm. criticism all day long if it's if it's based on what I actually believe. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Most of the stuff, if I Google my name, I'll find the, the some of the most obs- weird stuff that people say I believe that I'm like, I never even ha- I never even thought that, let alone said it, let alone believe it, you know. So that's just that frustrates me. I'm like, at least represent what i'm saying and then disagree push back like i i actually enjoy that so uh yeah i think that's a good that's a good exercise i think it also t- does take there's a great book i i, I cited in the first chapter by adam grant who's a uh i think he's a social psychologist it's called the book is called think again and it's all about how and why people change their minds fascinating book i learned oh, so much from it's so it. good so you read it okay good oh, good yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so good so clear but um i think one of the things he says early on there is that we should be um more and this is a paraphrase and i hope i'm getting it right but like we should be more interested in the in finding the truth than defending our position mm-hmm and if somebody's thinking, what's the difference? Ah, that's part of the problem. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you, you yeah. know, like, a, like a, if you're after the truth, then the, your dialogue partner, even if you feel like there's a significant degree of disagreement, they, they become a partner in the journey. Um, and then their viewpoint can even help you to like find holes in your, in your belief system. And, and, and maybe you want them to push back and point out, areas where your logic is flawed. Um, and maybe it's not, maybe they'll push back and like, yeah, I disagree with that. And that's totally fine. But like, if we're more concerned about be about finding the truth than being right, then you won't see the other person as a threat. Um, but as a partner in the journey, and I think just having that kind of, just that kind of shift in posture can make, can make a big difference. Yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about in regards to having more fruitful conversations. And one of the points that you make is, um, we have to be willing to rethink, our positions. Yeah, and to. so I, I, I would, I'm very curious to hear what is something, you know, in the, the last six months or the year that you have been rethinking about? Man, that's a good question. I would say, um, I, in it, specifically in the transgender conversation, um, and this book, I make it clear at the beginning, I'm talking about sexuality, not gender. So LGB, not the T. And, you know, I point out that there's a big difference between LGB and T. Um, I already, I wrote a book on T. Yep. Um, And I would say that is one that even in the writing process of my book on transgender identities, in the editing process, and even now that book came out two and a half years ago, even as I keep thinking and rethinking, there's, there's so much complexity there that I'm, I, I, um, 
I'm constantly thinking and rethinking different aspects of that conversation, you know, using someone's pronouns, um, mm -hmm. the morality of transitioning, the diversity of trans experiences. Um, is there, how do we, if we're, if we don't think people should transition, as I argue in the book, I do argue against the ethics of transitioning, then it's like, okay, what's the other option for people to have debilitating gender dysphoria that apparently no psychotherapy can do anything you know these are complex complex questions and for me i'm i'm i'm, I'm it's a high value of mine to build relationships with the people that i'm talking about so i i'm constantly mm -hmm. talking to uh friends who are trans um and uh so you add the relational component the complexity component and and there's a lot of things in that in that conversation i'm constantly kind of rethinking and rethinking and, and did I get this right? You know, or maybe I was like 70% sure of this and now I'm like 60% or 40%, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, more recently, because I just finished a manuscript on, uh, it's a whole different conversation, but, but on kind of a Christian <laughs> political identity. Yeah. Um, I'm constantly thinking about how the biblical narrative applies to how a Christian should think of their, relationship to the state that's something i'm constantly thinking and rethinking because i would lean a lot more kind of anabaptist one might even say christian anarchist <laughs> that sounds all bizarre but i'm 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 more of that kind of um that kind of spirit and so there, there's a lot of um aspects of that very complicated conversation that i'm constantly thinking and rethinking about so but that, that's, that's going to take us to do a completely i was going to say that that might be a podcast that, for another time that, that's next year that's yeah. next year yeah, yeah. yeah. um you know i, I want to go back to what you mentioned about what you were um rethinking in terms of uh transgender people yeah. i'd be curious to hear you know you you mentioned you know you you wrote the book embodied i'd love to hear what's something that either like you've either shifted a little bit since that book came out or even like you've you've doubled down or you've just gotten even finer into the details mm. from that man that's a tough question i i there's there's nothing major in the mm. book that i that i've changed my thinking on um i that book was such a hard it was so hard to balance between kind of the relational side and the idea side of that conversation. Um, re relationally, I feel like I'm, and don't read this term politically, but just more liberal in the sense that I try to be very generous with the kinds of relationships I engage in and, and really have, I, I try to let relationships play a strong role in my thinking and my posture and my emotions. Uh, on the idea side, I am very, analytical um i'm very for lack of better terms maybe scientific or whatever like i'm very logical very left brain and in the trans conversation those are those are two those worlds can really collide so i felt like dr jekyll and mr hyde writing the book that when it comes to the ideas i it, my heart feels very again for lack of better terms conservative or like you know there, there's a lot of just factual things that are like you know, in, in my darker moments, I'm like, you know, boys aren't girls, girls aren't boys. And there's, there's kind of like low hanging fruit on, on kind of like attacking even or addressing or showing why some of the ideologies that are out there are just flat out wrong. You can even hear it. This is, this is what I'm being very open and honest with you. This is what's yeah. going on inside my heart. Like how yeah. can people believe that? And then I go hang out with my trans friends and I'm like, Oh my lord, these people have been mistreated by society, by the church, especially especially by the church, unfortunately. And like not all of them are these activist types and ideologues, and they have different viewpoints than what you see in the mainstream media. So I'm, I'm so I had to really balance the tension of um holding to my viewpoints in a way that's clear and with conviction and also being generous with relationships. And depending on who reads the book, some people um, am I allowed to say a hole on the podcast? Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Some people think think I'm an asshole in that book, and other people think I'm flaming liberal and and have no conviction. Like to you know, depending on what they wanted me to say, yeah. how they wanted me to, yeah. you know, like I even raised a question. I just got it the other day. 
are intersex conditions caused by the fall. That that's somebody who has a, 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 some kind of atypical feature in their sexual anatomy. Some extreme versions are people born with full male and female anatomy, and that's a big debate among scholars in this area. Like, is it is there something is this just part of the natural variation of creation that some most people are male, some most people are female, some embody both, mm-hmm. or is this a distortion of God's created design? Now, most Christians are going to assume. This is a distortion of God's created design. That's probably where I'm at theologically. I think that's probably makes the most sense theologically. But again, I've got friends that are intersex and sometimes just boldly saying that unearths a lot of shame. And I'm not saying therefore we don't say it, but it's like we have to go go about these conversations carefully when we're talking about real people. And so I, I was kind of navigating that tension in, in a chapter on intersex and, and people got pretty upset that I would even raise the question, is intersex caused by the fall? That I would even admit that, you know, some people don't think it is. I One, one person in particular, I won't name them while well, I, I do in a podcast, but I mean, they, they were pulling out their hair. They were so upset that I would even raise this question. Like, of course, it's like asking is two plus two equals, does two plus two equals four equal four? So, sorry, that's a, this is a long response yeah, to your yeah, really, really good question. But um, in short, th- there's nothing in particular I would say I've completely shifted on. It's just as I go back and read the book, I'm constantly thinking, was I too weak on expressing my ideas? Was I too strong in expressing my ideas? Was I too generous with my relation, letting relationships shape my posture? Was I not generous enough? And, and just that tension, I, 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 I will always go to bed at night thinking I didn't quite nail it exactly the way I should have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about it even just high even underscores the point of like, we need to be willing to ask those questions, even if it's afraid of it because like the like the alternative if you look throughout history of like not asking the hard questions yeah. is very scary. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like in the, yeah. not not even just like theological issues but just just in general. Yeah. In it. general. I mean we I don't like I I despise Christian environments that stifle hard questions, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I if people are upset for me to even asking is intersex caused by the fall, I, I just the environment that gives rise to that upsetness, I just fundamentally don't like. So yeah. I think it's it yeah. stifles people's faith and curiosity. Yeah. You know, I, I want to follow up on something that you said, because I think it touches on another thing that you talk about in having fruitful conversations. That's adding nuance to it mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And you were talking about this balance between, you know, you have these ideas or you have these views and yet at the same time, there's people, there's people. Yeah. And, and talk to me about how you mm-hmm. go about like, just communicating that because whether it's about sexuality or whatever it is, I think what you're talking about there hits at that idea of like, you have your idea, but the nuance is found in the people Mm -hmm. it's found in the relationships. Can you just expound on that a little bit more? I mean, that's something that I've been engaging the LGBTQ conversation for over a decade now. And and just exactly what you're stating has been a high value of mine, just keeping relationships close to you. I, I don't think relationships or experience should determine your theology or ethical beliefs, but they should shape how we go about believing ethically and theologically. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've often said, you know, how we believe is almost as, as important as what we believe, you know, how we hold on to our beliefs and, and yeah, relationships again, just because I meet the most amazing gay couple, which I have doesn't therefore mean my sexual ethics should be founded upon that. Cause that, that's just, that's just not a good, you can't, you can't base your ethics on a, on experiences. Cause there's such a wide diversity of experiences, right? Cause I can meet, you know, just cause I meet a heterosexual couple that are both assholes. Doesn't mean heterosexual marriage is wrong. You know, like that, that's just not a good foundation, but yes, I think it absolutely relationships and experience should just significantly shape how we go about um, engaging in contentious issues. When, not if, but when you meet a gay couple, um, for my conservative Christian listeners, you know, you, you meet a gay couple that, you know, doesn't have an open relationship, um, are very kind and generous, or, you know, are very humble and not political or whatever. They're not, they're not demanding you to bake a cake, yeah. when, you know, all the stuff you see in the news. Like when you meet, when you meet that couple, that should shape how you 
respond to some post on social media about gay marriage and this bill being passed or whatever. Like you're like, there's, there's real people here. This isn't just some online debate that, you know, is, is faceless. Like it very much has image of God, people created in God's image at the heart of it. And I think that, um, that should, again, not dictate what we believe, but it should shape how, how we go about the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing I want to ask you about for fruitful conversations, and then we can, you know, talk about uh, other parts of the book is uh, talk to me about help, what helps you whenever you are engaging in somebody who's being argumentative. Yeah. Um, hmm. There's two different scenarios here. One is an online situation. One is an in-person situation. Yeah. <laughs> online. I honestly just don't engage. I don't. Yeah. I don't. I, I think um, 99 out of 100 times, that's just not going to go anywhere. Um, or if you do engage online, because unfortunately, that's probably the primary space in which people are engaging in argumentative people. Um, just I would just don't try to refute what they're saying. Just respond with kindness. There, there was one incident. <laughs> yeah, somebody, I, I, this is a while ago, so I, I, I'm not going to recall the exact situation, but... Um, somebody i think they were more on the conservative side of things that was disagreeing i get it from both sides so i i, mm-hmm. I, I don't even know what the issue was but they were coming from a conservative perspective really obnoxious like just that just saying things that were just grating on me and i think i said something like hey thanks for the thanks for the challenging thoughts by the way you have a beautiful family because in their twitter bio they did they have beautiful be their wife and four kids and whatever and yeah, the the response is super soft. Like, imagine that. Like a soft answer t- turns away wrath. You know, like what's he gonna say? Like, how dare you talk? You know, like, and then he left it at that. And then we started talking about like parenting or something. You know, it, it it just, I think it was unpredictable and disruptive, and probably more beneficial than if I just refuted all his arguments or whatever. Because they were that would it was it would have been easy to show that he's saying stupid stuff or whatever. In person, I guess there's. Yeah, the gentle answer turns away wrath principle would would be would be good. Um, but if you're engaged in somebody's really angry, and I've definitely been in these situations, I think going back to our original principles of of truly listening, trying to be calm, your calmness will will hopefully be contagious and, and maybe turn down the temperature. I think give them the benefit of the doubt that if there is a lot of anger and vitriol, there's probably a story there. Um with the topic we're talking about, same-sex marriage, um, if somebody is very heated and angry, trying to refute my position of a traditional view of marriage, you know, um, maybe they have a maybe they have a gay friend that mm-hmm. um, was harassed and abused by a Christian leader, and I, these are real stories, you know. Um, maybe yeah. they had just a horrible experience in in the church. Maybe they're gay and, and maybe they, they're the ones who had this, you know, almost if there's usually the, 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 the level of anger is reflective of the, of the depth of the story that, that mm. is feeling this anger. So, so I try to look through the anger, try and to the soul of the person and try to think, man, well, what's, what's led this person to get so angry about this, you know, and, tr- and try to show interest and curiosity in that part of their story. Um, doesn't always work. It usually does. I mean, yeah, that, that, you know, if I, if I say, Hey, you know, if they say, How, I can't believe you would read these passages this way. This is terrible. Your view is harmful. I had somebody tell me you are harming gay people. You are sending them to, to death. You are, you are contributing to their suicidality. Actually, the scenario I'm thinking that I didn't respond well. I think I responded with an argument or something, which looking back, I'm like, that was, that was terrible. Um, what I should have said is, you know, just show tons of empathy in, in gay people committing suicide and say, you know what, you're, you're, I want you to know that your concern and, and your, in your, your, your 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 anger towards me. I I want you to know I'm I'm I I truly am am hearing that and and I don't um maybe I want to hear more about like what what do you think I could do differently and I know that 
it's not like I'm giving them a blank check to whatever you say I'll do. That's not, that's not what I'm saying, but I truly want to hear your heart here. Like, what, what do you think? Do you think I need a theological change? Um, do you think there's something about my posture, my wording, something that I could maybe do differently that, that would maybe um, help the situation. And again, I'm not promising to just do whatever they tell me to do, but can I genuinely listen to their concerns, you know? And, and oftentimes if you do that, that does lower the temperature and could lead to a more fruitful conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, I do want to talk about uh, some other parts of the book, but sure. is there anything just uh, regarding having fruitful conversations that's just top of mind or that really helps you that you want to mention? Um, the big one for me is I think, how, how are you a millennial or a Gen Xer? Okay, I can't even tell. Uh, millennial. You're, you're millennial. Okay, so I'm yep. a Gen. I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm. I guess the one of the underlying things in the book is I'm I'm picturing like either a Gen Xer or a boomer having this conversation with their younger millennial son, daughter, or their Gen Z kid, you know, or whatever. Like, um, I, I want boomers and Gen Xers to understand that being humble with our beliefs, um, even, 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 you know, my, one of my last points in chapter one, um, not being overly certain with what you believe. Like, I know for boomers, that's like cardinal sin. Like, no, you're 100% certain 100% of the time. If, if you're 99% certain, then you're doubting and God condemns doubt and you're weak and you're not, you know, like all these, this is so black and white and not every boomer thinks this way, but, but I mean, just understand that, that if you, yeah. If you hold your view with a little more of an open hand and aren't overly confident, that will actually be more compelling, not less, toward younger people. They will be more prone to be interested in what you believe if you hold your beliefs with a little more humility, a little more uncertainty. It's so counterintuitive for my age and older Mm -hmm. Gen Xers and boomers. Um, But just trust me on this you will actually accomplish more, not less in helping other people, younger people, especially be convinced or at least be, at least entertain your viewpoint than if you just, you're preaching out them with black and white, loud truth, you know, is that true? I mean, did tell me if oh, I'm yeah. wrong. Oh yeah, that's so true. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I, 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 anytime that someone comes out with a book, I love hearing the the story behind yeah. it. And I know that you don't, you'd already written people to be loved. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Talk to me about what led you to to writing this yeah. book, especially after writing People to Be Loved. So People to Be Loved, you know, it's a book on sexuality back in 2015, kicked up a lot of dust, you know, um, it was kind of like my theological and relational journey into the conversation. Um, and this book, so yeah, so 2015 wrote People to Be Loved and have been mm-hmm. speaking all around the country to hundreds of churches, denominations over the last seven and a half years. And anytime I speak, I get loads of Q&A. Um, the review has been, the book has been reviewed. It's gotten pushbacks, you know, all this stuff. So this book is kind of a, a response to the dust that was kicked up by people to be left. All the, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? Some, some of the arguments I just didn't address in people to be left. Some of them are the arguments that weren't around. And, um, some of them I may address, there's a couple chapters in here where I'm like, Hey, I said this and people to be loved, but I no longer believe that anymore. Here's where I'm at now on this thing. It's, it's it's kind of a response to the last seven and a half years since people to be loved. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about what's what's one of the things that you changed and people to, from people to be loved. Um yeah. So I yeah, that's a good question. Thank you for I knew it's gonna pique some interest. Um <laughs> there's two major two things that I think they might seem minor to some people. So uh number one. I think I gave way too much emphasis on the prohibition passages in the Bible. The ones that say basically don't have same sex sexual relationships. Like I gave whole chapters to each verse that addresses that and only one chapter to the question of what is marriage. And even then, if I go back to my chapter on marriage and people to be loved, I don't think I set it up right. I would set it up differently. In fact, I, I do set it up. differently. You, you do set it up differently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> To me, the number one, by far the number one question is not what do these prohibition passages mean? What does God say about same-sex relationships? Like these aren't the main questions. The main question is what is marriage? Mm-hmm. What is marriage? What is marriage for? Why did God design marriage? Like these are the more fundamental questions that I didn't frame it that way and, and people to be loved. If I ever do a second edition, I would definitely rewrite my marriage chapter. So this this book does have a much... I think 
better theological understanding of marriage as the foundation to this entire conversation. And within that, my second thing I changed my mind on was was specifically the meaning of the phrase uh, one flesh in Genesis 2.24, which isn't an insignificant phrase. It's kind of the biblical word for marriage is this one flesh union. Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, Jesus quotes it in Matthew 19, Mark 10. Um, the original context in Genesis 2.24 is significant. And in people to be loved, I didn't think that one flesh implied sex difference. Whereas in this book, I showed that I think I was wrong in that. Again, seems like maybe a minor exegetical observation. It's actually a pretty significant point. So I've, I've actually changed my changed my view on that. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's talk about like what okay. is marriage. The the what yeah. you talked about that like you wish you would change things, and that's I I I might have already said this, but I absolutely love how you even just format the book, mm-hmm. like your formatting of like the fruitful conversation. Then you go here. Here's my premise. Here's my statement. Mm-hmm. Here's all the arguments against the statement. I'm going to deal with them one by one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, t- talk to me about the the historically. Uh, traditional uh yeah. view of christian marriage yeah so the main question i think is not can two people of the same sex get married the main question is what is marriage like what does that word mean if you're an alien from outer space came to earth and you know you met somebody and they said hey this is my spouse and we're you know we're married and the alien says oh what does that mean i'm not familiar with that word marriage what does that mean like what would you say to that alien from outer space you know what is marriage is it when two people fall in love is it a consensual lifelong covenant union um, is, or more specifically to our conversation, does the word marriage necessitate sex difference or to put it differently is sex difference, male and female, a necessary part of what marriage is. Um, if you believe in same sex marriage, then you don't think obviously by definition, you don't think sex difference is a necessary part of what marriage is. If you believe in traditional marriage, you do. It's it's really, it sounds so basic, but people, most people engaged in this conversation don't frame it that way. They they skip right over this, this question. So I, I do spend a lot of time on that question. Is sex difference a necessary part of what marriage is? And I, uh, I, I try to show that from Genesis one and two, Matthew 19 and other passages that, that yeah, this, this one flesh union, that we call marriage can only take place when there's sex difference. Two people of the same sex can love each other. Two people of the same sex can even engage in sexual activity with each other. Uh, but I don't think theologically, biblically at least, like I'm again, I'm you yeah. can, you know, people can, can agree to disagree. I'm just trying to trying to understand that the Jewish writers of this ancient text, um, I don't think they would have recognized um a sexual romantic relationship, even if it was consensual and loving as a marriage, they would just say that that's, you know, marriages can only be between a male and a female. Um, so, um, yeah, what is marriage? It's, it's a lifelong covenant union between a male and a female designed to, uh, I forget exactly how I phrase phrase it, um, to tell the story of God and to, um, populate the earth to, to, to procreate. Like I do, I do, I do lean a lot more Catholic in this book than I do in the previous book, specifically on the question of procreation. Like I do think that procreation is a, is one, not the only, but one significant purpose of God's design for marriage. Why, you know, I think it's why, you know, people ask why is sex difference? Why is it necessary for marriage? And I think because procreation is one main purpose of, of marriage. Um, and there's other purposes as well. We can, talk through if you want. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know that. Um, I think a couple that you mentioned is symbolism and companion. We talked yeah. on yeah. the procreation a little bit. Um, let's talk about the symbolism yeah. of it and the companionship of it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, marriage is often used throughout scripture. Hu- human marriage is often used as some kind of signpost, some kind of billboard or symbol to, uh, to the world to speak of God's love uh, toward his people. In, in the Old Testament, that was Yahweh and Israel, New Testament, Christ and the church. And so the question, and that, so that's not disputed. This is, and this is pr- kind of pretty pervasive in scripture. 
it's in Genesis one and two. It's in the the bookends of the Bible. You know, the two bookends mm-hmm. we we see marriage. Um, it's in significant passages like Ephesians. It's in you know um, uh, a lot of the prophets draw on this metaphor. Um, so the question is: Is sex difference necessary for that analogy or symbol to work? And I do point out that I I do think it is. Um, I I think if if you erase sex difference. I think that would significantly hinder the relationship between human marriage and divine marriage to humanity. Um, and I think it would, you would have to kind of rewrite the story a bit. Like, I think that would, I would, that would significantly interrupt God's relate the story of telling God's story of his relationship with, with, uh, with his people. Now those people disagree with me on that. So in, in that second chapter, I'm not, Entering into those disagreements, yeah, I'm just trying to say he, here's how I understand and how historic Christianity has understood uh, this symbol. So, yeah, procreation is kind of the obvious one, and I do address the questions about what about infertility, what about chosen childlessness, what about sac- or marriage and old age and, and these things. Um, so, yeah, so so it's the symbol um, procreation, and then you have this companionship piece that in books like the Song of Songs that hardly talk about procreation at all, you still have two people in a marriage relationship that are intimately enjoying each other sexually, intimately, romantically. Um, and so marriage, there is a piece, I think companionship, relational intimacy is part of, of, of what marriage is, is for where I kind of want to make sure we don't overread that though, is that um, while marriage can serve that role, I don't think marriage is designed to be the primary or only place where people find companionship. So yes, marriage provides companionship, but no marriage is not the only place where people find companionship. In fact, in almost every case where the Bible addresses loneliness, um, relational flourishing, intimacy, connection, unity, it's in relationships outside of marriage. Um, There's a one verse, you know, it's not good for man to be alone in Genesis two. I think that's been over, over read and I addressed that in the book. Um, But yeah. So all that to say, while, marriage can serve that purpose. You don't need marriage to find companionship because companionship, if, if that was like the main or only purpose of marriage, then you don't need sex difference for that. That's not, yeah. you know, um, so yeah. Uh, yeah. So those are the three. And then, you know, uh, when you talk about the meaning and purpose of marriage, you, you, we are wrestling with some really complicated theological questions that, that church history is, you know, has wrestled with for, for millennia. Um, so we have to at least be aware of some of the complexity of that part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to dig into a couple of the reasons that okay. you tackle. Um, but bef- uh, I, I guess this is kind of along with it. One of the questions, and, and we didn't talk about it, but one of the things that you talk about um, in the first section of uh, of the book of how to have fruitful conversations is yeah. you talk about steel man yeah. and straw man yeah. arguments. You know, and straw man is basically like people are bringing up the points to where it's like, you know, that's not my best piece of evidence for it. And steel man is like my best piece of evidence for it. Right. I, I would love to hear what's like some of the, um, both I'd love to hear straw man excuses mm-hmm. that you hear whenever people talk about this conversation to where you're like, you know what? I don't actually feel like that's the best, not, not that you necessarily mm-hmm. agree with them, but like, that's not the best piece of evidence. And then I would love to hear the inverse of, I'd love to hear what's your, what's your steel man. Argument. Yeah. Good. A lot of straw, typical straw men, arguments have to do well i would say the number one straw man is simply when people quote a bible verse um i'll be honest it's usually in the king james version nothing against the king you know but like it's usually a king james quote sometimes it's in all caps if it's in on social media they'll say god condemns usually they'll say a homosexuality and then they'll quote romans one mm-hmm. as if there's a single gay person alive that has memorize Romans one, you know. So I I, th- I think yeah. simply thinking that people who believe in same-sex marriage have just simply are just blissfully unaware of Romans one or or first Corinthians six. Um uh I think that would be the bet the, the most common kind of straw man. Like you actually haven't you haven't really taken the time to understand that people have wrestled with these passages and have come up with other ways to interpret these passages. So, you know, the biblical interpretation is like, you know, observation, interpretation, application. You first read the text. What does it say? Then you wrestle with, what does it mean? 
-hmm. And then how do we apply it to today? So when people simply linger on observation, like, oh, those are just these verses that self-evidently condemn same-sex marriage. I think that is probably the most common straw man. Um, or, you know, the Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, or kind of, or some political stuff, you know, they might just feel like, oh, all people, all gay people are just groomers after our kids or something, you know, they might quote Fox News more than the Bible or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of those are just, you just, it shows you haven't taken the time to understand what is the actual theological argument here. Um, some of the best steel manning of arguments for same-sex marriage, I mean, th these are, you know, the some of the 21 arguments I address. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of the stronger ones might be, you know, consensual same-sex relationships didn't exist in the ancient world. Therefore, Paul and other writers couldn't have been prohibiting that. Or um, sex difference was necessary for populating the earth. That's why it's in Genesis 1 and 2. God wanted us to populate the earth. But gosh, we're well beyond populating the earth. Mm -hmm. So we don't, we can have marriages that aren't for procreation anymore. Even if most, even if most are, most marriages will probably procreate. Like we also have infertile marriages. We have marriages in old age. We have non-procreative marriages. So why not have same sex non-procreative marriages? Um, I think that's a decent argument. Um, probably the most compelling would be uh, Karen Keene, an affirming biblical scholar who looks at kind of Jesus's hermeneutic and says, because she says, no, the Bible prohibits same-sex sexual relationships. The Bible also commands us to observe the Sabbath. But we, Jesus kind of introduces this hermeneutic that even if you have these laws, there could be exceptions to the laws, or there could be time when we should set aside these laws for something for the greater good. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, don't work on the Sabbath. But Jesus says, yeah, but I mean guy's got a crippled hand like his restoring his hand is more important than obeying the sabbath or if you had a sheep caught into a, a well like yeah you shouldn't you know pulling them out might be work but look for the sake of saving the sheep's life you would set aside keeping the sabbath to um pursue the higher law or however you want to frame it and she she has a really i would say um intricate way of developing that argument to make it apply to same sex uh, sexual relationships. Yes, the, the the Bible says no, but there's other factors at, at work here that could be taken to say, okay, for the sake of preserving life, um, we can temporarily or, or you know in certain cases set aside the, the biblical law for the sake of human life. So I do have a response to those. I would honestly prefer that the the person goes and reads the book. So I respond to all that in the book. Um, yeah. So I don't want to give away too much. <laughs> yeah. Well. If if you don't mind, let's just tackle one. Sure. Let's just tackle one of those, um, and I, I'd be curious to hear your response to to the Sabbath to the Sabbath one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll tackle that one. Um, we'll, we'll we'll tease out. The, everybody <laughs> else has to buy the book to find out. The okay. 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 Um, first of all, in, in the book, I make a habit um, before I respond with some kind of critical evaluation. I try to affirm some good things with the argument. Um, so with that one, yeah, I think uh, I think. Uh, in particular, Karen Keene is, is the one representing this argument. I think I think she's very accurate in how she understands um, Jesus's, what he does with the Sabbath. I think she also, I, I really appreciate the fact that she, um, that uh, she doesn't just dismiss these passages. Like she is, she's arguing in a very sophisticated, nuanced way from a hermeneutical perspective. And she's not making just sloppy dismissals of these prohibition commands or, or even, you know, uh, Genesis one and two, when it talks about sex difference in marriage, I, my, my, I get, let me just give a twofold pushback. Number one, just because that's what Jesus does with the Sabbath doesn't mean we can easily map that on every other eth ethical command. Um, mm -hmm. there's many other ethical commands that don't have any exceptions. I would put adultery in that, um, in that position. Um, I would put, um, I per I would even put like polyamory, um, a sexual relationship among more more than two people in, in that category. I would put, um, um. There's other sexual prohibitions 
I, I don't want to give them because these analogies have been using used to shame gay yeah. people, but you can, you're, you can, your mind can wander. There's other sexual yeah. prohibitions that there kind of are no exceptions to this, to this prohibition. So all that to say, good work on the Sabbath. That That's really good. But we, we would need to see the same kind of pattern for not just the prohibitions, but redefining marriage. Sex difference is part of what marriage is in scripture. Um, if you can show otherwise and do that, but if you, if you take that at face value, then you need to show that, um, that there could be exceptions to, to that rule. And I just don't see a good biblical case that can be made for that while a biblical case for working on the Sabbath could, could be made because we see it right there in the words of Jesus. Um, also the direction of Jesus's ethical thinking is toward Genesis one and two, not away from it. And we see this, especially when he talks about sexual ethics in, in Matthew 19, you know, the Pharisees come to him about divorce saying, you know, Moses gave us all kinds of exceptions to marriage and we can divorce our wives for what many reasons. And Jesus says, yeah, that was because your hearts were hard from the beginning. That was not this way. And he goes back to Genesis one and two as the foundation that he is moving toward. And I think that's a, that's a pattern in Jesus's ethical reasoning. So I would say, does same-sex marriage move us closer to Genesis 1 and 2 or further away from that? And I would say it would move us further away from that. Mm -hmm. Lastly, I would say, because her argument is kind of like, for the sake of preserving life, if some, if life is at stake, then laws can be broken. It's, she doesn't come right out and say this. And I think in a, I had a lengthy blog dialogue with her, I, I really enjoyed that conversation with her about this. And I think she would probably deny that she's doing this. I still think it's very much implied in what she's saying. Her arguments, as far as I understand it, again, go read her book and, and make your own decision. It seems to say the Sabbath can be broken for the sake of preserving human life. In a similar way, same-sex prohibitions can be preserved for can be broken for preserving the life of gay people. Namely, if gay people are told they can't marry and have sexual relationships with the person of the of their orientation, then they will be, you know, suicidal, uh, depressed. They'll abandon the faith. Like all these bad things will happen if they are told that they can't marry the person of their desires to me that, and I point this on the book. I'm like, that feels like you're idolizing or elevating marriage and sex higher than the Bible does. In fact, it feels very much like purity culture. <laughs> it feels like a, a, a resurrection of what we did have done as an evangelicals of saying the goal in life, you know, you get married and then you'll live happily ever after. And, you know, if, if, you, if you don't go past first base with your boyfriend or girlfriend, then God's going to bless you with a spouse. You're going to have a flourishing sex life and you'll live happily ever after. He, like marriage and sex is kind of woven into the fabric of here's what God has promised you, you know. And and if that doesn't happen, then something goes wrong and I don't know how to live. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm 38 and single and how do I function? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like where in the New Testament did God promise marriage and sexual fulfillment? He just doesn't. Like that's not... If anything, he elevates singleness and says, this is a, a, a high, you know, um, if you really want to live it up, the single life is kind of where it's at. So I do think that for her argument to work, I think she has to elevate um, marriage, namely in her view, same sex marriage and sexual and romantic fulfillment. I think she elevates those much higher than I think the Bible does for her argument to work for human life to be at stake. If gay people can't marry the person they desire, then they can't it almost feels like she's saying they can't live like in the same way that breaking the Sabbath for the sake of preserving human life, you know, is, is, is the analogy that, that she gives. So yeah, that's a long, that's a long, that's probably longer than the chapter, but yeah. No, <laughs> that that's great. Well, and, and that's even part of the thing of like these conversations, the book, all of that, like they, they need to be long, like they're not yeah. simple, short soundbite conversations and everything. Yeah. 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 I refuse to give, thin answers the thick questions although in, in the um in the book i do try hard to be thoughtful but also accessible like these chapters you know some are four pages some are eight pages i, I do try to keep it somewhat manageable you know yeah 
Well, I know that there's lots of other things that we could talk. I mean, there's literally like 20 more uh, arguments <laughs> that we, we yeah. could talk about in there. Um, but is there anything just top of mind, you know, around what we've been talking about or anything that's just on your mind that you want to make sure that we cover? Um, well, something I say early on in the book, that th- this book is not designed to be a a person's only book on the topic. That that's important, and my publisher might not like me to say this. I even say in the in the intro because I'm more about honesty than selling books. I'm like, look, if you're if this is, if you, if you haven't read anything on the topic, um, go return this book to Amazon and go go read. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I would say don't don't let this be your only go to book. There, this isn't mm-hmm. um a holistic approach to same sex sexuality or same sex marriage. This is more narrowly focused on responding to, I would say, most of the or all the top arguments for same-sex marriage but it doesn't talk about relationships it doesn't talk about pastoral care it doesn't talk about how the church needs to repent from all the the damage it's done towards lgbtq people i did a lot of that in people to be loved so i'm relying this really is kind of a part two following up from people to be loved so um I, again yeah if you haven't read a book yeah i would yeah get it read it but don't let this be the only book you read on the topic yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Have the uh, go buy people to be loved and then go buy this book. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Preston, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you and uh, get your book and just follow you and your work and all that stuff. Where's the best place for people to go to do that? Uh, you can buy the book where books are sold, namely Amazon and anywhere else. Um, and to keep up with my work. Uh, so my podcast twice a week, Theology in the Raw. Um, by if you're interested in just sexuality and gender questions as a whole, I run an organization called the, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, uh, centerforfaith.com. Um, we do events, we have resources, we have training courses, all kinds of stuff there on the website. And then I have my own website, PrestonSprinkle.com and theologyintheraw.com. So Google around. There's, there's probably too many websites out there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. Preston, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. And just thanks for a great conversation. And thanks for doing the work yeah. and for sharing it with us. My pleasure, man. Good talking to you. There's so many things that are just coming to mind as I'm just reflecting on Preston and I's conversation and if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know, especially that first that first half of the conversation is the heartbeat of this podcast. We want to engage in those types of conversations. We and we want to get better at it as well, whether it be with strangers or just with the people who, who matter the most to us to where we just see things differently as well. And I think just following up on on that I think I would just say, just echoing what Preston said of following your curiosity, just digging down deeper into just understanding like just the finer points. Okay, where where do we under or where where do we disagree? What do we disagree specifically about? Where what do we agree on? Because you might find out, oh, you know what, we actually agree on like 87% of this, and it's just 13% that we don't agree on. Or that it's, you know, we, we, uh, agree on, you know, 93, you know, pick whatever percentage that you want to pick and just realizing that we don't necessarily agree with people 100%. And that leads us to, to just loving people better, which is because under understanding, I mean, just what Preston said, you, whenever you behind the disagreement is a story behind especially if someone is getting emotional or there's there's a very big reaction to something that you're asking about there's a story behind it and it's and it's our responsibility i would say as followers of jesus when we're in those types of conversations to love that person and part of that is understanding their story understanding where they're coming from understanding what they've been through and what what they've gone through as well and the other thing is pay attention into our own reactions as well if we have a big or an extreme reaction to something then that's telling us something about ourselves and it's our responsibility to deal with that because that is getting in the way of us at some point that will get in the way of your ability to love somebody because you'll be so focused on whatever that reaction is that that whatever that person is is touching on something in you that you're just sensitive about and sometimes it can make us say things or do things that we end up regretting 
And so, <laughs> yeah. So those, I mean, there's there's so many other things that we could talk about, and you know, we'll continue talking about them here on the podcast as well. But that's just one of the things that I really appreciate about Preston is just digging into those types of conversations and not being afraid to talk with people who see the world differently than him as well. And so, yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Preston for being on the podcast again and, you know, check out our previous conversation. I'll link to that in the show notes and yeah. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks to Sam Massey for being, uh, not for being on the podcast. Thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Kayla Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.